In my last three podcasts, I shared six reasons why I believe in and trust Christ. In this reflection, I give the resurrection as a seventh reason. By way of reminder, what I have said so far in this specific chapter, Meeting Jesus on the Road, which includes podcasts 39, 40, 41, and now 42, is that I believe in and trust Christ because, one, I believe in God, the God of the Bible. I believe with both my heart and with my mind and have experienced, have encountered God in the depths of my being. Two, considering a number of factors, including archaeological evidence, the characteristics of eyewitness testimony found in the Gospels, and what J.B. Phillips referred to as the New Testament's ring of truth. Considering all of those factors, I I believe the core historicity and validity of the Bible find it to be essentially reliable. Three, I believe that in Holy Scripture, God has conveyed a coherent message to humanity, culminating in the person of Christ. Four, I believe that the prophets of ancient Israel told of the coming Messiah and that Jesus fulfilled their visions of one who would be a suffering servant, making his own wounds available for the healing of the world, overcoming evil with good, hate with love, and despair with hope. That Christians have sometimes interpreted the prophets in an overly simplistic way does not invalidate their message. Five, I believe in Christ because the more I live his teaching, the more I find it to be true, to be the way. Six, I believe in Christ because in the face of Christ I see the beauty of God, and I am convinced with all the great philosophers of history that the beautiful, the true, and the good really are one. Now, in running through this list, I just realized that I'm leaving out uh, what is for me a, a very important piece of additional evidence, which I discussed in an earlier podcast, at least I hope I did, and that is the impact of Christ and his teaching on world history and life. And so, Um, That is number seven, then. In saying this, that I I, uh, uh, am convinced because of the impact of Christ and his teaching on the world, uh, on world history and on life, I'm thinking of more things than I I can really name right now. The the improbable survival and growth of the church, the lives of extraordinary people like St. Francis of Assisi or Mother Teresa, the the transformation of ordinary, innumerable men and women through the ages, its influence on the very culture of uh, our world, on, on every culture, of our world, in fact. Uh, Read, for example, Desire of the Everlasting Hills, 
the world before and after Jesus by the outstanding historian and writer Thomas Cahill. Or, for a very academic and more dense work along these lines, read Tom Holland's Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. The very ideas, values, and principles we Americans use in in criticizing Christianity today, especially in in criticizing um, uh, right-wing Christianity, our very arguments for justice and compassion are derived from Christ and his teaching. Gandhi's ideas of nonviolent resistance, while assimilated into and interpreted in Hindu terms, came to him from reading the Gospels, especially the Sermon on the Mount. Now, eight. (laughs) My eighth and final reason, the one I will reflect on now, is that for me, faith in Christ is confirmed and vindicated by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, I will confess a great deal of ignorance here. The truth is that neither I nor anyone else understands very much about um, what resurrection means. It means in terms of what actually happened. What I am confident of is that Jesus was taken down from the cross by his grieving friends on Good Friday afternoon. But early on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, was unexpectedly encountered as fully alive, first by a few women in the garden where he had been entombed, and then by his closest disciples, later that evening by Cleopas and perhaps Cleopas's wife who met him on the road to Emmaus as they walked home in sorrow and despair. Exactly what the nature of these appearances of the risen Christ were like We will never, ever know, at least not in this lifetime, no matter how much we speculate about it. How physical or how psychological or how visionary they were, we just really can't tell. At the first upper room appearance, Jesus eats fish and a piece of honeycomb to show he's not a ghost. In a later upper room appearance, he invites Thomas to touch his wounds. But how is he able to enter the room? Is a mystery that the door, which is locked, doesn't have to be open for him. He just suddenly appears in the room. At Emmaus, he's not recognized until he uh, breaks the, the bread. But as soon as they know it is Jesus they have been walking with and have been invited and have invited into their home, he vanishes, he disappears. And in St. Paul's Damascus Road experience, it is clear that Christ's appearance is a vision which impacts Paul both physically and spiritually, but is not discussed or is not, um, is not dismissed by the other apostles. Rather, it is affirmed as an authentic encounter with a risen and living Christ. As a kind of footnote, I will add that my own limited research indicates that we moderns simply do not understand, accept, evaluate, or appreciate 
visionary experiences in the same way as the people of the ancient world. If we think an experience was visionary, we're quick to dismiss it, even if an experience uh, is profound, includes the physical senses, as it did with Paul, and is intensely vivid. We're prone to say, well, it was only a vision. I think it is Marcus Borg who suggests that uh, anyone would, who would say of such an event, it was only a vision, has obviously never experienced one. There are three ways of understanding the resurrection that can legitimately be considered as Christian. First, resurrection means for some that the tomb was empty and the and the flesh and blood body of Jesus was brought back to life, and that Christ appeared to the twelve disciples as well as to a number of others, at, at least 500 people at one time. A physical bodily resurrection that does account for much of the data in a straightforward manner and easily refutes many of the attempts to explain the resurrection away. For example, if, as it is claimed sometimes, that, if the, that, that the women were in a state of confusion and blinded by their tears and so mistaken early that Sunday morning when, uh, when they went to the tomb and, and actually went to the wrong tomb, then why didn't Joseph of Arimathea, who owned the tomb, or the authorities simply point out the error, invite everyone to come and view the body. Leon Morris's old book, Who Moved the Stone, does an excellent job in looking at the resurrection from this perspective. However, if it was the literal, physical body of Jesus that was resurrected, it certainly, according to the gospel accounts, was not like any ordinary body we know of. Second, for others, there was a resurrection. The tomb was empty, and Jesus' friends did see him and did encounter him alive. But from this point of view, it was not Jesus' former physical body, but a transformed body they saw, a spiritual body of which we can know practically nothing. This view uh, has, of course, the advantage of explaining Jesus's suddenly appearing in a locked room and then vanishing. For a third group, resurrection means that although crucified, Christ is indeed alive and present, really present to those who love him. Whether the tomb was empty or not, does not really matter to these people. Although it is impossible to describe in any way what happened or whether what happened was physical or spiritual or both, something did actually happen, and Christ is the living Lord of life. The appearances themselves were, according to this view, a series of dramatic spiritual encounters in which the followers of Jesus were intensely and acutely aware of Christ's real presence so that they spontaneously and powerfully exclaimed of him, my Lord and my God. 
Now, people frequently argue over whether Christians believe Christ is the Messiah because he was resurrected, or whether they believe he was resurrected because they believe he is the Messiah. I don't see that as an entirely helpful discussion, and so we'll simply say here that I think they go together and are ultimately mutually supportive. A far more significant issue to me is where to begin. If we begin with the belief that resurrection is an impossibility, then obviously we can go no further. The starting bell may ring, but we remain fixed at the starting line. But I don't believe at all that the resurrection is an impossibility. I think that quantum physics, in fact, demonstrates its possibility. And since we don't know everything there is to know, we need to show some humility, I think, in asserting what is and what is not possible, what is in harmony with and what is in what is contrary to natural what what all what does natural law include the famous theologian paul tillich once said in regard to both the possibility of jesus's and everyone else's resurrection that he didn't believe in spooks and he didn't think he would want to be one anyways Tillich evidently wasn't taking into account that the real me is not the material stuff my body is made of at any moment in time, but the atomic pattern that constitutes my body. Nor does he seem to have taken into account that according to quantum physics, it may well be that only consciousness, what the ancients referred to as spirit, is really real. To be fair, Tillich was born in 1886 and he died in 1965. And as brilliant as he was, he thought mainly in 19th century scientific terms, as do many scholars still today. If I understand the quantum physicist correctly, I find this very intriguing. If someone knew the state of everything, the state of all particles and energy so well as to fully understand all of the physical process, all of the natural laws that govern the universe, they would theoretically be able to trace back from all that knowledge to figure out exactly what inputs resulted in the current state of everything. So if you went on a really great space vacation, and took a quiet and leisurely spacewalk, and your wallet accidentally dropped out of your pocket and floated off into interstellar space. No matter what happened to it, as long as you could measure all of the resulting particles, waves, and so on, it would be theoretically possible to work backwards and figure out exactly what was in the wallet, to the point of determining the very words on your driver's license. Now, the technical ability to do any of this is obviously way beyond science and may never, ever be possible. I, I rather doubt it ever will be. But my point is that the laws of the universe don't make it impossible 
only more than a little difficult. I do not, therefore, start from the impossibility, but from the possibility of resurrection that God knows and can reconstitute any pattern, did so with Christ, and will do so with me in the end. I've already noted my confidence that the four Gospels, as well as the Acts of the Apostles, represent eyewitness testimony. So there's no need to repeat all of that here. I, I am, but I am very certain that a significant number of Jesus' disciples, friends, and followers believed beyond any doubt that Jesus had appeared to them alive after his death and burial. The very same Jesus they had known and loved before his crucifixion. We can, of course, argue with witnesses about whether their perceptions of an event were accurate. But there is no arguing their experience. Marcus Borg, who was certainly no Orthodox Christian, observed repeatedly in his books that Jesus' disciples experienced him as alive after his death. Borg's position is not at all unusual among secular, non-confessing, or agnostic biblical historians and scholars. Paula Fredrickson, a historian specializing in early Christianity and professor of scripture and comparative religion at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, commented on the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus like this. Fredrickson, who is not, remember, a Christian herself, said, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historical evidence we have afterwards attest to their conviction that that is what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw, but I do know that as a historian, that they must have seen something. And E.P. Sanders, a major New Testament scholar at Duke University, who identified himself as a liberal, modernized, secularized Protestant, also represents this cautious agnostic approach. In his The Historical Figure of Jesus, he wrote that Jesus' followers, and later Paul, had resurrection experiences is, in my judgment, that Jesus' followers, and later Paul, had resurrection experiences is, in my judgment, a fact. What what the reality was that gave rise to the experiences, I do not know. I find, then, the eyewitness testimony of the Gospels convincing. And sometimes it is very um, uh, small and seemingly uh, inconsequential things in, in which I hear the ring of truth, like Jesus eating fish in a honeycomb in the upper, in the upper room appearance, or uh, the other simplicity and warmth of the walk to Emmaus, or 
preparing the disciples a breakfast of fish over an open fire on the beach in a Galilean appearance, or the whole thing with Thomas and his and his doubts, with which we so easily identify and are so real. The story is told in the Gospel of John. Thomas wasn't with them when Jesus came the first time, says uh, John. And when the other disciples told him that they had seen the master alive, Thomas said he wouldn't believe such a story unless he could see the nail holes in Jesus' hands and put his finger in the nail holes in his hand and a gaping wound in Jesus' side. Eight days later, they were all in the room again. This time, Thomas was with them. Although the door was locked, Jesus entered the room and stood there among them. Shalom, peace, he said, giving the customary Jewish greeting. He looked directly at Thomas and said, Thomas, go ahead and examine my wounds with your fingers. And Thomas said, my master, my God, my Lord and my God. As a kind of corollary to the above, I've always been intrigued by the testimony of the women who followed and supported Jesus. Unlike the men, they had not fled into the dark when Jesus was arrested, but gathered there at the foot of the cross where he hung dying. On Sunday morning, they had all gone to the garden to finish the funeral preparations for his body, but instead are the first to discover the empty tomb and the first to encounter the resurrected Jesus. It is, as everyone knows, a strange story because the testimony of women in 33 CE was legally invalid. That's why Paul, in enumerating the appearances, begins with Peter and not the women. For the empty tomb to have been discovered by women, or the first post-resurrection appearance to have been to a woman, hurt rather than help the disciples' case. Yet, there it is, simply and naturally told in the official story. I am, as noted earlier, among those who believe that the resurrection furnishes the only explanation large enough to account for the magnitude of Christianity's impact on the world. The story of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus was the spiritual and social equivalent of the Big Bang at the beginning of the physical universe. I am thinking first of the improbable survival of the church and then its phenomenal growth. But I'm also thinking of the impact on culture and certainly of the impact on countless lives across 2,000 years. Finally, experience, both mine and that of others, tells me the resurrection of Jesus whether I can explain it or not, whether I can comprehend it or not, whether I can make any headway in proving it or not, is real. I think of all the people I have met along the way, many who have claimed to have encountered Christ as a living presence and to know Christ as their constant companion on the best and worst of life's roads. And the thing is, the thing is, that their life has backed them up. An experience of many Christians, as the Oxford philosopher and Christian author Keith Ward put it, is that of dying to the old self of hatred and despair, as Christ died on the cross. 
and seeking to live again in the power of his resurrection life. A fundamental Christian experience is that of dying to self and being raised to a new life through an active power of reconciliation and love, said Ward. I also agree with Ward's final conclusion. If a large number of people, apparently well-balanced, intelligent, and virtuous, feel that God has met them in the proclamation of Christ's teaching, death, and resurrection, and has transformed their lives for the better through a sense of the presence and the Spirit of Christ in their lives, it would be reasonable to trust their testimony. Actually, I think what I have encountered in a number of Christians whom I have met along the way is better described as life itself, the life or presence of Christ. As for my own experiences, I would not want to say too much and embarrass myself since I'm such a poor Christian specimen. But again, what I have experienced of others, and of Christ myself, tells me Jesus was raised from the dead and is alive. I'm, of course, talking now about the sort of knowledge that I said in the beginning was fuller and so much more than the sort of knowledge that emerged from the Enlightenment. So I will conclude now with this quote from Luke Timothy Johnson's book, Learning Jesus, Listening to the Heart of the Gospel. The process of learning Jesus is necessarily both complex and continuous because it requires not answering questions about a dead person in the past, but relating to the mystery of a living person in the present.